welcome to another session of Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. And boy, we're nearing the end. We're, we found our way to chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And, uh, and we can confidently say that um, we have a couple more chapters <laughs> remaining uh, before we complete this study. And boy, what a fantastic time this has been, uh, guys. I, once again, I'm joined by my good friends, Don Harris and David Pfizer. And I was reflecting a little while ago at just how much fun this has been to do this with you guys. So I, I'm so appreciative of uh, how you have built into my life and, and spoken into my life over these last several weeks. And uh, I'm anticipating withdrawals after we finish uh, our study of Revelation. We'll have to figure out a, a next project. <laughs> Amen. Boy, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about that. Don't tempt me. I'm, I'm sure you have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, good to be back together again uh, with you guys. Last In our last session, we concluded with uh, talking a bit about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now we are looking at some more imagery. And uh, boy, as I, I was reading through chapters 19, 20, and 21 especially, I started uh, remembering and thinking back on the images that we've already talked about and how now they are reappearing in this final uh, segment, if you will, um, of the book of Revelation. And, and uh, in one sense, it makes it a little bit easier to understand. And in another sense, uh, we uh, are challenged by some of the, the, the picture that John is painting here. So uh, let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 11. And let me just begin reading the first few verses, because again, this study has been about um, many things, but primarily about looking for Jesus in Revelation, uh, the Jesus as he truly is. And uh, here we certainly see this picture, an incredible picture of uh, the conquering Jesus who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a phrase that we've met already, but we'll meet again in this passage. So John writes in chapter 19 in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in, in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heavens arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow, what an incredible picture of our Savior. Um, with the reading of that text, I feel that uh, I should be hearing voices. Mm. Uh, uh, the Hallelujah Chorus specifically. So I don't want you to think that Revelation is causing me to have either uh, visual or auditory hallucinations, but it does call those things to mind. Um, I think the question here is, uh, what do we have before us? Uh, who is this rider on a white horse? And I know we could spend a lot of time here, and it's not that I think the answer is difficult, just that there are so many associations from what has been said previously. Um, so uh, I don't know where we want to dive in, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, and dive in on this one. Uh, one of the problems in this passage is that says that he has a name that uh, only he knows, and yet we are given three names for who this person is. Uh, that's quite interesting, I think. You know, it, it is. So do we suspect then that John is not letting us in on what that name is that only he knows? 
but instead is describing him with names that we already know? Well, I do believe that's the question, but uh, why don't we deal with what we do know before we deal with what we don't know? A good place to start. Yes, uh, the writer's name, he is called Faithful and True. Uh, we have that in verse 11. Uh, that's one of the first things said. Uh, but then after we are given that identification, then we are told he has a name written that no one knows. That's in verse 12, the last part of it. Uh, but then in the next verse, in the middle portion, we have the name by which he is called the Word of God. And of course, that's the loaded one, isn't it? Uh, where have we heard that before? It takes us back to John 1. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and there are echoes there of Genesis 1. So, you know, we're, we're dealing uh, with God himself, with God incarnate. And then we have this designation in uh, a name written on his robe and on his thigh. And this is what brings us to the Hallelujah Chorus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's no doubt that we're looking at Christus Victor here. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other associations I could make, but I, I've spoken too far already. I need to let you guys get in on this goodness. I think one of the things that I'd like to draw attention to before jumping into that, though, is how this section of scripture opens, where we see, then I saw heaven open. Um, this is not necessarily a chronological transition, uh, but the transition to a different vision. And so is this all happening at the same time? Is this happening one thing after the other? Uh, we don't get a fixed timeline as we've discussed before in Revelation, but John is receiving all these visions one after another. And as we've discussed before, uh, the, the interpretive schema for Revelation seems to be uh, this hermeneutical circle of sorts, you know, going round and round and getting closer and closer, coming uh, to an end and yet kind of giving us a different angle on everything that's happening. And it's coming to the pinnacle here uh, in the revelation of this great white horse this rider uh on the white horse and mm. it's unlike anything that we've seen outside of revelation and yet there are little hints uh throughout old and new testament that point us toward this and so the fact that uh he is righteous he judges and makes war that uh from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations he, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We, we have imagery from uh, Isaiah and from the Psalms there. And so this is not just a, a, a New Testament invention as it were, but it's the culmination of everything that has come before it all the way from, as Don said, Genesis one and everything in between. So, we, as we pick this apart, so to speak, we should do so reverently because this is, while this is a vision we're reading about, it is still uh, God unfolding his plan first for his servant, John, in order that he may communicate this to the seven churches, but also uh, it's unfolding before us. Mm. And there's something about what we're reading here that should humble us, that should remind us uh, that we worship an awesome king and that we should be full of the fear of the Lord, that it is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you say that, David, because it is, I mean, it's clear, just as Don had pointed out, that this is, this is a picture of the victorious Christ. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the reigning Christ, the conquering Christ, but at, at the same time, 
boy, when I read this and I hear what you're saying about, you know, this is this, the, these aren't new images. These draw to, at some level to back to the Old Testament. But don't they also draw on what John has already prophesied, what he's already seen? Um, uh, and I want to be careful here. And I appreciate your encouragement that we want to look at this passage reverently. Um, but the, some of the images that I see repeated here, one is in something we might want to tackle uh, in this session. We'll see where we want to go with this. But, but we have another white horse. Um, of course, this white horse we see in uh, the Zechariah. Uh, we see this white horse also, or I shouldn't say th this white horse. We see a white horse in Revelation chapter 6. Um, with the, uh, with the opening of the seals and the first horsemen. Uh, but we see other things too that are familiar uh, to, to us from reading in Revelation. Uh, the idea here of the robe dipped in blood. Uh, th this isn't gonna surprise those who have read up to or heard up to this point that mm -hmm. this is in reference to the lamb who was slain. Um, there's also imagery hearkening back to the, the churches or, or well, the churches and the believers who will conquer, who will overcome. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, uh, for example, is one of those references um, with the, the church in Thyatira. Uh, Jesus makes mention of that they will have authority over the nations uh, and, and so on. So in verse 27, he says, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The, the, this is re making reference to those who overcome. Um, and so here we have Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. And, um, and so there's a, there's a part of me that as I read this, I'm, I'm reading it with an understanding that now we're, we're, we are just about at the end. Uh, John is revealing all of this truth now, and it's all in Christ. Um, uh, and, and he's revealing the, the promise that he's already spoken of to these churches, that those who conquer uh, will reign with Christ and rule with Christ. And of course, we see this in, in other places as well. Uh, in chapter 20, verse 4, then I saw thrones, John writes, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Seems to again be referencing back to those uh, churches. It, it, it seems to me that they would have been thinking in that way that, oh, it's true what Jesus said, that if we overcome, uh, mm -hmm. We will sit on the thrones, uh, as he mentions in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 21, uh, with, with the church of Laodicea. Um, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Mm -hmm. and, also, and I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so you, I mean, it just seems as if those who would be hearing this are saying, it's come true, uh, all of these things that John has been saying to us. I don't know, guys, what, what do you think? I mean, we talk a lot about recapitulation. Is this one of those uh, areas of recapitulating? I was just going to say, I think this is, uh, in a sense, the summary of summaries of recapitulation because of all these themes that are coming back to the surface. Um, you know, we've already read about the wine press, the, the second yeah. harvest uh, being put into the wine press and the wicked having to drink of the, the wrath of God. Um, so there, there is all sorts of things being reminded back. And I think that is absolutely true. Remembering one of our uh, main uh, axioms for this study has been that our interpretation has to make sense to the original recipients of this letter. And so this is as good a point as any to remember that that first the, uh, group of readers, listeners, those from those seven churches 
would hear this, absolutely, Michael, and see the fulfillment of the promises of Christ for those who overcome, for those who remain faithful, uh, who hold true to the gospel. I mean, what greater name could you hear the one on the horse than be called faithful and true? He is who he has called us to be, faithful and true. Mm. And the blood, um, you know, all who are able to get to this point, who are seeing this recapitulation, uh, they have overcome by what? The blood of the lamb and their testimony. So there is great fulfillment here, but there's still some looking forward as well, because he has that name of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The, the wedding feast has begun, but there's still some work left to be done. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I do want to give us a, a, an opportunity to speak about this white horse and the rider on the white horse. And I know that we dealt with this uh, several sessions ago when we talked about that, that first septets uh, uh, of the seven seals and the rider on the white horse. And uh, we have different opinions on that uh, rider and what that is symbolic of. Um, I, I tend to look at that as being representative of the church in the church's mission to go about uh, its mission to conquer uh, with the gospel. Um, I, I follow uh, Victorinus in, in that, not to, to make the assumption that just because Victorinus writes the first commentary on Revelation that he's the authority on Revelation, but, um, but a part of why I I'd say that is because of this writer on this white horse, who is uh, distinctly unique compared to the rider on the other white horse. And yet, as we continue to talk about how John is amplifying and uh, em embellishing at points, perhaps um, highlighting and, uh, and ultimately getting to the, the apex, the climax of what he's trying to say. It's almost as if he is saying that, look, here is what was going on with the church being the witness in the world as a, as a white horse uh, riding out uh, with, with uh, the bow. But ultimately it's Christ on that white horse who is the ultimate authority, the final word, the faithful one, the true one, the righteous, who uh, is, is judging. And, and so it just seems to me that John is being deliberate in the use of that imagery, the, the white horse uh, in six, the white horse here in chapter 19, um, that drawing upon uh, the, the, the chariot that's drawn by the white horse in uh, Zechariah which seems to be a white horse with a message that's following uh, the other horse to the north. Um, it, not a, it doesn't seem to be a judgment in that context, but someone who is delivering a, a proclamation. So anyway, interact with me on that, guys. Yes, that, that is one point of view. Um, another point of view is that they're distinct. Um, I'll follow the distinctive approach at this time by well, I think saying, they're distinct too, Don. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think they're distinct as well. I, it just seems to me that John is amplifying now. Here was what the church was doing. Now, this is what Christ is doing. But, but anyway, sorry. Okay. Uh, so I, I think the uh, rider, or I think the horse in chapter six, uh, is not Christ as we see him here in 19. I, I think that the character of sending out the, the white horse, the black horse, the red horse, and then the pale, like a ghostly green horse, that they seem to be a set that go out together. And that alone influences my decision uh, a great deal. Uh, but then what I see here in chapter 19 is a very uh, definite attempt by the author, John, uh, to give us a very firm identity of who this person is on the horse. And we've addressed that to some degree already. 
Um, but I think the, the character that we, we haven't dealt with beginning in verse 11 is the nature of this pericope is that he is coming in righteousness and he judges and makes war. Um, so that would be a difference, a stark contrast between chapter 6 and uh, chapter 19 here. But all that to say that I think that uh, we've talked about the recapitulation, we've talked about the hermeneutical spiral, continuing to come back to those themes that I've mentioned already. And one of those uh, that I would mention here is from chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, where uh, I'll just remind you that that is the subject of the sixth cup or bowl judgment. And we're We've come to the point now where the gospel has been offered. It's been widespread. But now, whereas we would have expected in chapter 16 to go from judgment to glory, we did not do that. We had a, another extended uh, discussion from 16 on to the present here. And so I, I find myself thinking that now we're getting to that battle was, that was spoken of. I believe this, what we're seeing here in 19, beginning at verse 11 and following, is that we're at Armageddon. This is the final battle, if you will. And, and the distinctive feature of this rider on the horse is that he's coming in judgment. And that, you know, I don't believe that we're see, seeing an offer of the gospel here. Whereas before that of might that might have been the case, or or that was the case for sure. Um, and if you take Michael's identification of the white horse in chapter six as that of being Christ and the gospel being proclaimed and going forth, um, you know, I'm not going to die on that hill. I just have a different opinion. Uh, yeah, so and I, I wouldn't say that that white horse is Christ, but that that white horse represents the mission of the church. Okay, thank you for the clarification, and um, I, I note that I didn't mean, I did misspeak, so I apologize for that. Um, I can edit it out. Oh, sure. <laughs> I have fun uh, making you guys sound smart, actually. Yeah. Somebody yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the big task, isn't it? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I do have a different viewpoint. I've said why. But then to just place it in its setting, I think we're picking up here where uh, chapter 16 left off with the, with the uh, sixth cup or bowl judgment. Yeah, I think um, I've been looking at Beale a bit on this section. And one of the things he speaks to is how uh, this really speaks to the judicial action of God that uh, to kind of play off what Don was saying, now is the time of, of God's judgment. Uh, God's nostrils have had their fill, so to speak. The sin of the Amorites is piled up to its fullness. And uh, let's see, what other biblical images can I import into this that aren't present here? The, the point is that this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild any longer. He is come to consummate the kingdom. And the consummation of that kingdom begins with the final judgment of his enemies. That is, all who have stood in opposition to the kingdom of God from the very beginning to whatever moment that is when that white rider, the rider on the white horse appears, he who is faithful and true. Well, no, I was just, I was looking back here, David, as you're talking and um, just thinking uh, here, and, and I admittedly, I should have given some more thought to this before uh, the, the three of us got together, but just thinking here, uh, I'm wondering if beginning in verse 11 here, and then continuing on through, as if we're seeing uh, that not so much an, an interlude, perhaps it is, but 
almost a retelling of the story, some, something similar to what we saw in Revelation chapter 12 with the, the imagery of the woman and the dragon. Um, and here, perhaps we're, we're seeing that, you know, the, the retelling of, of salvation history that Christ has come. Um, uh, he, he has always been faithful and true. He's always been the word of God. He's always been king of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, that, but look, he's coming with an army here in verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on what? White horses. On white horses. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I just um, feel like a pit bull hanging onto a tire. I'm not going <laughs> to let this go. Because <laughs> I, I see that, uh, that John is emphasizing, look, Jesus has come to conquer. The church is along with him uh, in this conquering mode. Uh, and then the imagery of... of uh, you know, what he's referred to back in Revelation 2 and 3 with the churches, and they're conquering with him. Um, and then, uh, as I've already mentioned, and perhaps I've beaten this like a dead horse and shouldn't, but uh, the, the image there again in uh, Revelation 6, uh, one with that white horse. And anyway, I mean, I'm just hung up on these white horses uh, and, uh, and their appearance in connection with Christ and with uh, his army. Uh, you know, what we do agree on is uh, who the personage is here, even if we don't agree on uh, the horse in chapter six, but, and the representation there. Uh, but Michael, you make a good case. Um, and if I was not so convinced otherwise, I might um, let you convince me, but I would say, <laughs> this is not the horse you're looking for. Nice. Um, okay, and, but what we have here is we have consistency. We have consistency with who Christ is and what he is like. Mm. Uh, there's a little resource called the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms. Are you familiar mm. with that? Yes, no? Okay, it, it's, it's, it's helpful and it makes the comment that judgment is about God's evaluation, not ours. Thank God that we're not in the seat of judgment. Mm -hmm. Because here, when the pocket dictionary of theological terms talks about judgment and saying that it's God's evaluation, it adds that it is using the standard of God's own righteousness and holy character. And I think that's just a beautiful way to look at it. God does not have a standard that's above himself that he doesn't need. That standard comes from God's nature and God's character. Mm -hmm. And so that God's holiness and his justice being part of his character are just as beautiful as those parts of his character, such as love and uh, grace and mercy and kindness. Yeah, they reflect in his ordered affections. Yes, and I think that's uh, one reason why last week our, our previous session was so beautiful that we end up there with people praising him even for his judgment, mm -hmm. even during his time of judgment. And so we have this consistency with him. And if I might, I'm just going to add to some of the things that we heard in chapter one and then through chapters two mm -hmm. and three we have repeated here again. Uh, we have things like not only the robe, but we have uh, the sword, the sword coming out of his mouth, mm -hmm. um, you know, referring to the word of God. So I, I, there's so much here. It's, it, it's interesting that these descriptions become even more and more rich as we've immersed ourselves in the sim symbols and the imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it goes on too, doesn't it, in verse 17, because these again are things that we've seen before. Um, uh, the, we see the references to kings and mighty men, uh, both free and slave, small and great, uh, drawing our minds back to, uh, again, the, the first septet, uh, the, the seals in chapter 6, verse 15, especially. 
And then, and then the image of the beast and the kings of the earth, uh, again, referencing back to Revelation 13, 1, um, and, and the prophet, the, the false prophet who is deceiving others, uh, Revelation 13, 11. And so those are, those are things, that, those kinds of images uh, that are recurring here are making me wonder if, if John is almost retelling this once again. Uh, in a different way. Uh, he, he tells it in septets. He tells it in the, the interludes uh, at some level. And here, again, if this is an interlude or if it's just simply the, the, the culmination uh, of the story, he's telling it, it seems, in another way, using the same images that he's already introduced earlier on in his vision. In verse... Uh, where he talks about his eyes were a flame of fire. We get that from chapter 1, verse 14. Mm -hmm. uh, on his head were many diadems, not just 10. Uh, we mm -hmm. see that in chapter uh, uh, 13, 1, where it refers to the beast of the sea. I think he's making a contrast here between the beasts and who are false and the, the Christ, the, the victorious Christ who is faithful and true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, we have this all going on. Let me just say one more thing about those, uh, the saints who come and they're clothed in white linen. You know, this is a war scene. And what do you expect warriors to wear? At least, I, I mean, this stood out as a great contrast to me. The imagery is not of knights in shining armor, that not in breastplates, you know, that are impenetrable but with white linen. And I, I thought that imagery was so powerful. Uh, and we know that they're made white by this, you know, how are they made white through, through this confusing uh, image of being washed in blood? You know that if they're washed in blood, they're not gonna be white. And so that's another clue that here we have uh, Purity, spiritual purity comes through a sacrifice, through the giving of a life. And so these are people whose lives have been redeemed. They've been washed in the blood of the lamb in a real and true sense, so that they come in this white linen, sparkling, pure. You know, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So I, I think that the imagery is just almost overpowering here. Um, and so... Yeah, I just think that those are beautiful things to remember. This actually plays off well what you just said. I think it's important to note that while Jesus has this vast army behind him, who is it that fights the battle? Mm -hmm. It's Christ alone. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost like this army of heaven, these armies of heaven are there for kind of window dressing, so to speak. They're, they're, they're there as witnesses, again, yeah. to witness to the righteousness of this judgment, to witness to the fulfillment of God's uh, recapitulation of his creation, retaking it and reclaiming it as his kingdom. Uh, the fact that his robe is dipped in blood, but the armies are white. Yeah. Uh, again, we see this fulfillment. And then the imagery of the angel declaring or calling out to all the birds that fly and, and come and gather for the Great Supper. There's all sorts of uh, crazy post-battle imagery here mm -hmm. that he knows, this angel knows the outcome that's about to, to take place. Uh, we can't forget that Babylon has already been judged. It's been overthrown by its very supporters. They, they turned on Babylon, uh, though we're not necessarily given too much in the way of knowledge for understanding that. But, it, you know, evil destroys, right? It, it turns in and it eats itself because it, it constantly has to consume. And then here is he who is faithful and true upholding the judgment of God that is faithful and true, 
and now it's the turn now it's the turn of the beast and the false prophet to be judged and they are judged by the word of god they are judged by the sword that is issued from his mouth mm-hmm. that what he speaks is good and right and true there, there, there's no battle yeah well that's that's, that's what irony. i wanted to add is that if you will accept this that this is actually armageddon the final battle mm-hmm. the amazing thing that the battle is that there's no fight right that it is how is the battle won it is done by the speaking forth of right. the word you know he defeats he says be gone you know go into the abyss right it, it kind of reminds me um i think it's john's presentation of jesus's arrest in gethsemane where the 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 mob of uh temple soldiers and others have come for him and they they ask him if he is Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, and they fall over. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was like a little snapshot compared to what will, will come. I think the other thing that occurred to me, and I meant to share this earlier before we even started taping, but I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if we had to do this over again, I, I would almost want to suggest that we take some time to look. Maybe we shouldn't be looking at the septets, but we should be looking at the visions because the septets are all caught up in the the visions, but it's the visions that kind of come and go, not again in any necessarily any chronological order, but they are, you know, again, kind of this hermeneutical spiral that we're we're getting, pictures here and pictures there that all kind of fit together in what has to be a very strange mosaic. And this vision, if it is a recapitulation of the whole of salvation history, as it were, um, is probably one of the first that we've seen that really does point us to the end. The fact that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords uh this really speaks to the consummation of the kingdom of jesus beginning to judge the unrighteous to judge evil to bring all things to right and so even in the midst of this tension uh of coming battle as it were god's people can sit back on their white horses and their fine white linens and just trust that Jesus is going to complete the mission, bring it home, as it were. This is good stuff. Uh, I, I just keep thinking, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, you guys are going to accuse me of of literally beating a dead horse here. <laughs> uh, as long as it's not a white horse. Yes, <laughs> there will be another dead horse. Yeah, you know, when I as I read this, and and uh, again. You know, sticking to some degree with one of our themes being a missiological theme, um, I just can't get away from that that uh, imagery here uh, with the the rider on the white horse and the things that he's doing. He's he's judging and he's making war. Um, uh, but how is he doing that? How is he judging? How is he making war? And John says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which uh, with which to strike down uh, the nations. Um, and what is that sharp sword? And I, I think the at least what comes to my mind here is that it's his word. It's uh, his faithfulness, his truth that is coming. Um, it's almost as if that that there's a gospel proclamation that's happening here uh, as well. And that that gospel is, his word is what is uh, is bringing that judgment um, and is making that war. And, and not, you know, if, if this is the, if this is, it is an interpretation, um, if it is a correct one, it's not, a war that is as we might imagine war 
in in the modern era or even in the ancient era it's a different kind of war it's a war that only jesus could do and 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 that war then is uh juxtaposing his goodness and his justice and i get that from uh, from uh, verse 15 again uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will poimane them with a rod of iron. Um, in the ESV, they translate it rule. Um, mm -hmm. But this is one of the few instances where we actually meet the word shepherd. Yes. Um, in, in the Greek, he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. And boy, isn't that striking that here in the midst of this war um, where he is bringing justice and his righteousness, there's a sense of his goodness, of his gentleness as he shepherds, uh, as he shepherds them through, through this battle. What comes to mind? missing something here. Yeah, what we, comes to mind is kind of the pardon the uh, the imagery here, but um, the sword is double-sided, as it were, so that on one hand, in, in Christ's executing the judgment of the triune God, yes, there, there is a judgment of evil, but there's also a vindication of the saints who were under the altar of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. You know, the, the time of their crying out, how long, O oh Lord? This is mm -hmm. it. And it makes me mindful of, uh, I think it's chapter 11 in Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, where he talks about the emotions of Jesus. And he links very solidly Jesus's compassion and his anger. That for those who are in covenant relationship with him, he has absolute compassion on them. But related to that is his righteous anger towards all the wrongs in the world and those who bring those about. And so his anger is righteous and it is unquenchable in the sense that those outside of the covenant they can plead ignorance, they can plead for mercy all they want, but it will be too late for them if they have not responded and become part of the covenant people. And so we, we see that, I think, in terms of he will rule them or shepherd them uh, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Um, and then we see this, of course, played out in the rest of the chapter, or the, yeah, the rest of the chapter. Um, again, allusions to what we read at the end of the first septet, all the different kinds of people uh, wanting to hide, wanting the mountain to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the lamb. Uh, but the beast is captured. The, the false prophet is captured. And, and what happens? All... Uh, they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And we kind of get this imagery from Genesis of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's, it's the culmination of both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Pardon my spaghetti Western reference there. I think that just adds to the cultural relevance, uh, to which I would add, they shoot horses, don't they? <laughs> they beat dead ones. <laughs> um, no, seriously, that we have the word of God uh, being the deciding factor in what ultimately mm -hmm. happens. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm not really comforted by this imagery of being shepherded with a rod of iron. Uh, I'm not sure that we are to attribute a softness to that. Uh, I think there's um, this idea that 
we find in 2 Corinthians with respect to uh, our witness, that is the proclamation of the word. To some, we are the smell of death, and to others, we are the aroma of life. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be what we have here. And I think that ties in, Michael, with what you've already said already about it's interesting that there's no battle, you know, we, we don't see the war, although it's pictured as a horribly bloody ordeal, but really what we find is that the declarative word of God puts some people on one side and others on another, and the response, and the, there's such a drastic difference between the two responses to God's word that we can't miss it here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. That's good. We referred to um, the great supper in verse 17. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, this is why I say sometimes uh, scripture is rated R. <laughs> I mean, this is a gruesome, gruesome image, mm -hmm. and it should not be, you know, we get desensitized to it, I think, because of uh, modern film, but notice the contrast with the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was just, I knew you were going to go there, because this is a <laughs> supper that I don't want to be attending. <laughs> That's right. You have a choice which table to belly up to. But you might have to watch it. Because the armies of heaven are behind him who is faithful and true. Thank God this is symbolic, not literal. Yes. Yeah. Um, so isn't it amazing how many things we have coming together, how many contrasts, how many juxtapositions, how many times we're circling back and coming around. Um, yeah. We've said well, I'm just thinking just as a piece of literature in and of itself, it's beautiful. Yeah. But to think that this is, I mean, this is visionary. It's prophetic. Uh, it's apocalyptic. Um, it's God's word. It, it just makes it all the more remarkable. Mm -hmm. And and what do we come back to here? Um, you know, our discussion has been playing on the edges of this. And actually, we've mentioned it directly. So I wouldn't say we've been playing on the edges. I'll take that back. But it comes down to the, the message of the gospel, the word of God, the proclamation. And it has serious consequences to the way people respond. And we're not responsible how people respond, but we are responsible for faithful proclamation, even unto death. It's kind of a summary statement of sorts, verse 21. And, you know, talking about the R rating um, and what's our, what's a proper response to this, uh, that, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh, symbolic or not, uh, th that would seem to be the judgment of all those who, for, to whom the birds were called for their feast all who were lined up against the Lord. Uh, th this is it. It's the final word. There is no more opportunity for them to repent. Mm -hmm. No more judgments uh, for them. <laughs> it's yeah. frightening. Mm -hmm. it, it should humble us and cause us to... look on the Lord with holy fear to realize, but for the grace of God, go we, that we were not on that side. Well, and I, I want to emphasize a theme, you know, my theme, it's not my theme, it's the theme that I have made prominent in, in Revelation. In this whole context, right in the center, verse 20, we've already mentioned it, but because you all didn't mention it, and I have to continually mention it, is this false worship theme. Yes. You know, we have this 
true worship in heaven, this false worship on earth, and ultimately false worship is going to be judged. And uh, David, you're asking, what is our response? I think, did, didn't you say that? Or what is our responsibility here? What's, uh, our, what's a proper response? It should be worship of the lamb, right? Yeah, you know, I wasn't I actually wasn't thinking of that as the answer, but I think that's the best answer you could come up with. Yeah, is one I just think of the need for faithful proclamation. Mm -hmm. Christ calls us to that at the beginning, and then we get here. We're right up to the end. We're confronted once again with false worship. And we understand that when we are faithful to proclaim the gospel, uh, some will worship him as they ought, but others will not. Mm -hmm. This really speaks to the fact that when it comes down to brass tacks, there are only two religions, for lack of a better descriptor. There, there is that which worships the Lord and that which worships everything else. This is, this is a judgment, not only of the beast and the false prophet, but of false belief and those who would give themselves over to that. And, you know, when I think of what, what is the seed kernel of that false belief, it, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, mm -hmm. that you can be like God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and. Sadly and frighteningly, we see that happening in our own day, in our own country. Um, it seems like it's happened, um, you know, that, that the gears were shifted into fifth gear just in the last few years alone. But we have seen such seismic cultural shifts in our country, uh, you know, whether it be the... Uh, tearing down of marriage between one man and one woman, uh, this whole gender identity thing and, and how it is affecting children, the abortion industry uh, that, you know, even 20 years ago, the supporters of abortion were far more cautious in how they spoke of it. Uh, now it, it's like drunken, people demanding it when they want it. Uh, no shame, no, no question that, you know, there's this militant autonomy. Everybody wants to be their own God. And ultimately, that is what we see judged in chapter 19. Uh, the judgment of the beast and the false prophet, those who were deceived by him, whether they, whether they were uh, you know, willfully deceived or not is not what the question is. It's who do you worship? Mm. And again, I think our proper response is, is humble worship of the Lord in, in fear, not irrational fear that, oh, he could turn on us at any second, but the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and acknowledging that uh, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. Non nobis domine. Good. And of course, the encouragement here, too, for the churches that were reading this, and for us as well, that uh, th those of us who have not worshipped are, are promised uh, yet another uh, reality that is soon to uh, be declared, one, one that is eternally with Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to get to a structural uh, issue here with this passage uh, as we close up chapter 19 and, and end this session. Um, verse 19 begins the same way as verse uh, 17. Uh, the translators choose to translate it differently. In verse 17, it's, then I saw and in verse 19, the translators choose to translate this, and I saw. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the same construction in Greek, uh, kai, uh, andon, idon, uh, and I saw, or then I saw. 
And I wonder here in verse 19, uh, is John um, amplifying um, what's happening with uh, between verses, uh, uh, well, even from verse 15 to the verse 18? Uh, because he says, and I saw, or, or we could say, then I saw, or and I saw, uh, the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Again, we've met this earlier. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Uh, presumably, these are the people that are uh, about to be feasted upon by these birds uh, as we, we meet this again, uh, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Again, a reference back to verse 15. And then finally, uh, we see uh, this, that and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, something that we see in verse 17. It's interesting that, you know, to go back to the rider on the white horse, when we're first introduced to him, he has many crowns already, right? And then we come to this kind of almost subvision, as it were, or a, a new vision, who knows, but the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies are gathered to make war. And, you know, are these the kings who were symbolic of the 10 crown, 10 horns? I don't know, but the bottom line is that these kings are dethroned, that they've lost their crowns even before the battle, it seems. I, I took a little time to do a search. Um... And the, the construction, the, the structural question of uh, Kai Adon is, it's interesting, that construction is used 32 times in Revelation. Hmm. And so I think this is John's way of keeping the narrative going. And, and I think that's a, a clear picture that a great part of Revelation is narrative. We don't think of it that way. But it reminds me, and I, I don't want to get too technical here because I'm going to get out of my depth in just a minute, but it reminds me of uh, the Hebrew way of continuing narrative with a while consecutive. Mm -hmm. And so meaning that there's a, a conjunction that is frequently used in Old Testament to keep the narrative going. It sort of means... Uh, this and then that and then this and then that. it just keeps the narrative moving so it's a characteristic way that hebrews would have told a story mm -hmm. and so john is um perhaps uh using you know this is a reflection of his hebrew culture and background in the way he writes I'm not saying it is i'm just saying it might be that's what it reminds me of but i so i think the structural issue we see it here in this text in 1911, 1917, and 1919. So he's obviously at least keeping this narrative going with this construction. And it so happens that the, the verb happens to be uh, to see, that is translated here, I saw. Um, so, Yeah, so very simply, I just think he's keeping the narrative going here. I don't, don't know that he's trying to make a special point any more than he has uh, the other 27 times he has used it in the, in the book of Revelation. I'm just thinking here uh, to the number of occasions that he juxtaposes, as, as we've talked about. Um, you made reference earlier to the juxtapositioning of the marriage feast to this other feast that's happening. Mm -hmm. And there almost seems to be another juxtapositioning of uh, the king of kings who's on the white horse, horse and uh, the, the kings who are with this beast. Mm -hmm. 
Christ is calling those to worship him, they have called others to worship them. Christ ultimately rules. Um, they ultimately perish. And uh, those who rule with Christ will celebrate the feast with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. These will be feasted upon by uh, these birds. And uh, it just it almost seems very colorful um, way in which John is communicating the, the stark contrast between Jesus on the white horse and the beast with the other kings. Mm, mm. Boy, it's terrible, isn't it? Mm. Well, whatever symbolism he's employing, I think for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we know whose side we want to be on. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, hey, that is a great place for us to pause as we uh, consider further uh, in our personal reflections on, on uh, chapter 19 and then as we move forward into chapter 20 and get to th this very interesting um, thousand years, whether we take it figuratively or literally, something that we'll deal with in our next session. So until then, for to David and Don and myself, we're grateful that you've joined us. We look forward to interacting with you on the discussion forum.